The Art Dealer Diaries are brought to you by Medicine Man Gallery, located for over 26 years in Tucson, Arizona, specializing in antique Native American art, early Western art, including the famed Maynard Dixon, as well as modern art. You can find everything online at medicinemangallery.com. There's over 6,000 objects to select from. Also, the Charles Bloom Murder Mystery Series, written by yours truly, me, Mark Sublett. There are seven books in the series, and they follow the protagonist Charles Bloom through all the intrigue of the art world set in Santa Fe and the Navajo Nation. These can be found on Audible, eBooks, Amazon, and of course, the gallery at medicinemangallery.com. I had Laura Finley-Smith on the podcast today, who's a curator for the Tia Collection. And the Tia Collection is this very unique um, grouping of paintings, both contemporary and Western, with a very strong emphasis on Western. And now they're collecting Native American uh, artwork as well. And she's been working for them for eight years, building this collection. And this collection tours throughout the country and is loaned to museums. So any of the museum directors out there, you'll definitely want to listen to this podcast because it's really going to give you that uh, added place that you can find great artworks that are free to, to have for your institutions. And Laura's really interesting, just the history of how she became a curator, because I really didn't know anything about you know, how do you become a curator? What does a curator really do? I've dealt with curators, but it's a job that uh, in some instances, I think you just kind of fall into it. And uh, she's done a wonderful job, and it was a very interesting podcast. Laura Finley-Smith. So today we have Laura on, Laura Finley-Smith, who is the are you, is your, your title the curator of the TIA collection? Is that, or what is your exact? Yes, or, or head bottle washer, or. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you do everything. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, I'm really excited to have you on today. And, uh, you know, because I really haven't had a chance to talk to a curator. You know, I've dealt with curators. A lot of curators have dealt with museum curators. I've dealt with private owner curators. Um, and they're important to our business for sure. Uh, mm -hmm. They're important to the art business for sure. Um, and I think there's probably a lot of people who go, how do I get that job or how do I do that? And uh, so we'll try to find out how you actually, you know, become a curator and what's involved in it. And I know it's not an easy process and I, I know some of your history and it's, you've been in the art world probably as long, if not longer than I have. And that's right. part of the ability to become a curator is you have to earn your dues. Right. So, so but where did you grow up? Um, I grew up in, in Dallas, Texas. Wow, and you have no Dallas accent. That's amazing. I worked really hard at that. <laughs> um, but I'm a seventh generation Texan. Oh, wow. And yeah, my, my family started coming to New Mexico when I was in first grade. Mm -hmm. And um, we had a, a second home here and, you know, spent a lot of time in New Mexico and it really, um, it always resonated with me. And um, after I graduated from college, I decided that Santa Fe was my place. So I've and been here since the late 80s. Yeah. So your, fo your folks had a home, a secondary home in Santa, mm -hmm. actually in Santa Fe? Yes. And what did your, what did your parents do? What was their occupation? My, my dad was in the real estate business, um, commercial real estate in Dallas and developing properties there. And then um, kind of for fun here, 
um, you know, they would buy smaller homes and, and renovate them and, um, and then sell them, you know, but it was, it was really out of a labor of love. I mean, you know, believing in um, preserving historic homes. Um, he loved the architecture. He loved, loved the architecture, yeah. yes. And that, so that must have resonated with you too early on as far as homes and things like that, I would assume. Well, it did. But, you know, growing up in Dallas, my, so my mother is the Texan. Um, my dad was from Boston. And um, so my mother's family was from Fort Worth. And, um, and so, you know, with those great museums there, and then also in Dallas, um, we were we were taken to museums from when we were little to look at art, to talk about it. Um, and, you know, and then my parents collected not, not just art, but, you know, all kinds of different things. Um, so that was also something that we were always part of. Our did, they collect, did they collect native art? I would think it might be kind of a natural if they're in Santa Fe. Um, I mean, some, you know, when they were for the house out here, but um, my my dad was part of a, a wine organization called the Chevalier du Tastevin. And um, my mother was also a member. And so, you know, they went to France quite often. They collected. So Tastevin is the, it's the little cup that wine connoisseurs use to take a little bit of um, a new wine, they swish it around, swish it in their mouth, and they spit it out. But they're, they're made out of silver, and they're these little works of art. And so, like, they collected those and all kinds of things. Uh -huh. And do you have some of those still? I do. I do I have several. <laughs> yeah, my, and my brothers each have. So my, I have uh, brothers who were um, identical twins uh -huh. and a couple, couple years younger than I am. And so they also have some because both of um, unfortunately, both of our parents have now passed. Mm. So. And, and what did uh, your brothers do, or what do they do? Are they in the arts? Um, well? Nope, my brothers are not in the arts. They are they are outdoorsy kind of guys, and um, both of them working in um, landscaping. And one of them helps to to build. Well, I mean, he's a jack of all trades. He can he can do anything really. So yeah, and but so they're both they're still in Texas. Uh -huh. So yeah, my, we're a fifth generation Texans actually on my mom's side too. So we have that in common. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, the, the whole coming over on the covered wagon kind of thing. Right. In the 1850s. Um, but so tell me, when you were a kid, were you interested in art? Like, in, you know, primary school and middle school and that kind of thing? Did you draw or paint or do any of that kind of activity? I mean, we did. You know, I, I mean, I feel like I was always creative. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not, not what I would call a natural artist, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, I love to needlepoint and, um, and, and to make things, but more, you know, kind of a la Martha Stewart. Um, that to me is an artist too. You know, I really do think that is. I mean, needlepoint is very difficult. It can be very artistic, especially depending if you're making your own designs and things like that. Right. Yeah, I mean, and my mother did needlepoint, and both of my grandmothers did. So it was something, Fine, that, right? <laughs> you know, so that yeah. then, you know, you, I think you also, growing up, there's a certain amount of, of in, in many cases, kind of absorbing what's around you sure. and being influenced thereof. So, um, 
So I think that that's where the needlepoint came from. But um, just that idea of, you know, having, having fun, creating something new and different. Mm -hmm. Um, And, but, you know, to me, artists, they, they are very different. I mean, a, a real artist, you know, they wake up and, and their need is that's how, you know, that's how they shine into the world, so to speak, is that need to create that comes from somewhere deep, deep within. Um, whereas, you know, my creativity, even though it's there, it's not, um, it's different. It really is. It's, you know, like I'll see something that somebody else has created and I'll think, oh, I could do that, um, which is different. I have an inspiration from somebody else's creativity versus it all coming, you know, naturally from me. So I would, I would almost disagree with you because, <laughs> I, I, no, the reason I'll say that is because um, I think you probably do have all that. Uh, and it comes from when you look at the art because you may not be able to create it or make it or have the desire to actually do it, but you have an intense desire to look, to evaluate, to see what the creative process is, because that's really what you do. And, and especially what you do is because you have a wide variety, you deal in Western, modern, everything. I mean, the whole gamut, which means you have to have an innate, a real appetite for learning and looking and observing art that uh, most people don't have, quite frankly. So I, well, and I just, I mean, I feel so very fortunate that that, that is my job. I mean, you know, when, when people when I'm meeting people now and, you know, they're asking what, you know, what my background is and what I do. And I, not jokingly, I mean, a big part of it's very serious. I have the best job in the world because I'm working with living artists. I'm working with museum directors and curators um, and trying to bring, bring both sides together. Um, You know, so, so, my client, the patron of the Tia collection, from the very beginning when he started collecting in the mid 2000s, he always had said, you know, that he wanted to share the art. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a museum, is that what you have in mind? And he said, oh no, you know, that that's a vanity project. And which, you know, in some levels I can understand and on others, you know, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's really difficult to create a museum. And I think about, you know, um, Crystal Bridges and how that museum has, has come together, you know, the first American art museum to be founded in, I think at the time it was 50 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and she, Alice Walton, her approach was at the very highest level for the quality of the art and the expression thereof, and, and then her contribution to that community. Um, so, you know, what, what my client has tried to do all along, and it kind of does sound like it's too good to be true, that the art that's in this collection is available for any institution, you know, to say, we're having a Frederick Remington show. Could we borrow your Remington, you know, for our exhibition? My answer would be sure. 
you can. We'd love that. Um, and, and there are no strings attached, no quid pro quo that if you want, you know, the Remington or the Georgia O'Keeffe painting that you have to take, you know, five paintings by an artist that's not of their interest and or appropriate for their audience. Right. Um, You're an it, art bank is really what you are. Yeah. A lending library is what I call it. An art lending library. Yeah, which is a is anything like that exist around from a private collector that's like yes, there are. I guess, but yeah, there are a number of private collections that work um, in a very similar manner, um, and you know, with with vastly different holdings. I mean, so the Tia collection is it spans from French Impressionism to post-war modern contemporary art. Um, with, you know, as you well know, a pretty substantial historic Western collection, right. um, paintings, photography, sculpture, works on paper, installation, video. I mean, it's, it is very, very broad. Um, and, you know, some, some institutions know the collection for the Western art, you know, for the, let's say, related to the New Beginnings show that is currently traveling, you know, to several institutions right. um, in the United States and aren't aware of the fact that, you know, there there's work by by extremely well-known, you know, post-war modern contemporary yeah. artists like Damien Hurst. <laughs> yeah, Damien Hurst and Yayoi Kusama and Jim yeah. Dine and Sir Anthony Gormley and we could go on and on. Right. Um, I mean, you've been to the collection and seen the space and right. I was um, blown away, by the way, when I saw the art, it was like, oh, my God, look at the depth. Of this. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea because I love contemporary art myself. So, you know, I have a working knowledge of, you know, that world, even though I may not be known for it. So it was like, oh, this is <laughs> way more impressive than I ever even could imagine. <laughs> it was a real mind blower. So I have a question for you, though. I'd like to get back a little bit because we skipped right into the meat and potatoes. But, you know, so you're growing right. up in Dallas. You, what was your interest in high school to when you went to college? What were you really thinking you were going to be when you went to college? Oh, I was going to be, I worked at a law firm um, in Dallas every, well, throughout the school year, but then in the summers, you know, interned and and I just helped, obviously, very menial kinds of things, um, filing and, you know, minor kind of research and, and that type of thing. But that was my intention was to become a lawyer. Hmm. And so I went, I went to college in Ohio, to Denison University, um, and, you know, continued on that path. And one of my professors there... Um, I don't know what I ever did, but he, he didn't particularly care for me for whatever reason. And I was that kind of classic overachiever, you know, a little bit of a goody two shoes, if you will. You know, I worked hard and studied hard and, and I certainly had lots of fun too, but, um, but that path became so challenging. And, you know, as a 20 year old, um, I mean, for whatever reason, I just decided okay, this is an, it was enough of a barrier um, that 
I, I needed to, in order to graduate on time, um, I had to pivot. And so I started taking history classes. Was it that um, one professor that really stopped you mm-hmm. from, because he was, you know, said this is not your field or was it even more significant than that and really said, you know, you're not gonna make it? Basically, I mean, and, and I got A's in his class, but I should have gotten like triple A's in the class for the amount of work that I had to do to, to prove constantly, daily, to prove myself. I mean, some of the other kids in the class were like, wow, he's so hard on you. Yeah. And I mean, like, it wasn't, it wasn't in my mind. Like, it was very clear. Yeah. And, and he also was the professor, um, you know, for most of the freshman and sophomore classes. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, and of course, I'm taking, I was taking other classes. I took art different art classes, photography, and um, some printmaking and, um, at, at Denison, and, and I loved those. Um, my art, I was taking art history classes as well. Um, and being from Texas, you know, I had learned to speak Spanish um, from when I was little. And mm-hmm. so that was also something that I continued. And, um, and so I just, I mean, you know, being 18 and saying to yourself, you want to be a lawyer is one thing. I mean, it's, you know, as we all know, as you get older, you kind of look back on, you know, how beautifully naive you are. Um, And, you know, for whatever reason, the world had another, another plan for me. And so I started taking more history classes and more art history classes. Yeah. And Do you have any animosity toward that guy in a way? I mean, it sounds like to me he he was a, you know, you wonder about somebody like that because you might have been just smarter than he was and he was really intimidated by the fact, uh, you know, you're an 18 to 20 year old who's really successful and who, who knows what they want. But you just said, okay, this is the way it is and I go on. Well, I mean, in the moment, I was really disappointed because I had, I'd spent all of that time at this law firm and, sure. you know, I felt like I understood the culture and, you know, very passionate about using my education to help people. Um, and so, you know, but, but once I started, once I changed my ideas and yeah, I, I kind of felt sorry for him that he that that was his intention in life to, and, and I'm sure I wasn't the only, the only kid that he right. kind of picked on, you know? Women and too, you might guess. You that know, that wonder was, about those guys. Yeah, I mean, that that was how he was making himself feel better right. on right. some level by, instead of being a mentor and, you know, support, really supporting true, rigorous, um, higher learning, he was against it almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a failed person that probably took it out on people he saw who were successful would be my guess. I always find that individuals like that in education are just, you know, how, how can you even have those people in there? They just they can really. I mean, you're you're resourceful and pliable, and said, okay, I'll I'll pivot. I can do this, and I found something I like better. But some people can't, and they quit college, or they just feel like they're a failure, or whatever, and that's it. They're done. 
because of one person. So yeah, well, I was lucky too that you know my parents were very supportive, and you know, and they, um, I mean, for for all three of us that you know that we we could do anything, and so you know the idea was then well, so what are you going to do? What what right. would you <laughs> like to do? Right. Um, and you know, I mean, I don't. I, I know I didn't have I didn't have any intention of of being in this spot right now. Right. It started. Um, Denison has a, a short one month term um, in January called J term, and you have to have you have to take two in your four years. And so I had taken one in my sophomore year, and I still had one to to take in my senior year. Mm-hmm. And so I had said to my dad you know, I'd like to go to Santa Fe and ski. And he looked at me and he said, well, what are you going to, what's your January term going to be about? Right. And, and I was like, well, you know, maybe are, are there some friends that you all have made somebody I could work for, you know, that, that January term and help and do whatever. But my intention in my mind, at least was that I was going to, I could see myself out on the slope skiing all day, <laughs> every day and like, you know, mixing it with a little bit of work. Right. And, I, get it. <laughs> yeah, I did was, one of those in medical school in St. Petersburg. I remember it quite well. <laughs> so my dad said, huh, how are you going to pay for that? And I looked at him and, <laughs> you know, it was my first, not my first, but it was a real like awakening and there was, we had quite a long conversation about you're getting ready to graduate from college and, you know, you're going to have to start taking on these bills yourself. And, and I'm thinking, but wait a minute, I just wanted to go ski, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and so it turned out he called Jerry Peters. Yeah. And he's like, hey, Jerry, I've got my kid, my oldest kid, who has this grandiose idea of coming to Santa Fe for skiing and you know could you maybe give her a job you know help her out so i started working for jerry and um you know again very menial kind of base things but it was for me it opened a door i one of my main jobs was to file transparencies Mm. um what year was this what year would this have been laura um, I graduated from college in 88. Yeah. So this would have been 87 or yeah. no, this would have been 88. And, um, he was up at Camino del Monte Sol. He was on Monte Sol. Yeah. Um, which was just, just up the street from, from my family's home. And, um, it was, you know, to be able to look at a transparency and I'd hold it up to the light and each one was labeled with the artist's name and the title, the date potentially, or the circuit date of that object. And um, I loved it because it was like taking your own art history class, um, looking at all of these paintings and sculpture and you know, Jerry, he's always, he was at the forefront of, you know, Western and American art dealerships. And so it it was such a wide variety. And I learned so much in just that one month. And of course, I got to ski, but I think two or three times. 
So my grand plan <laughs> didn't quite turn out the way that I thought, but it led to a summer internship going back to Santa Fe to be at Peter's um, for, you know, just for that summer. And um, that was kind of the beginning of, you know, what, what became my career. It was not an expected um, move, if you will. And so did you have a degree in art history? What was your degree from? The I was a Spanish and history double major art history minor. Yes. Yeah, you're a gunner. <laughs> yeah, you like, <laughs> you, yeah, I understand. You, you, we had a lot of people just like you in medical school. <laughs> My wife would be one of those people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now you want to excel and you want to do your best. And, uh, you know, I'm sure speaking Spanish has actually come in great, uh, quite handy, hasn't it? Oh, it, it, I mean, and, and just the experiences that, that, I've had like last year for Day of the Dead, a friend and I went to Oaxaca and, um, you know, we had arranged with some local guides to take us up to a number of the different villages where they don't speak English and, or they speak very little. And, you know, to, to have conversations that are more than just rudimentary. Yeah. Um, you know, to be able to talk about their art and their inspiration. And as you well know, Mark, you know, being in Santa Fe with the folk art market, yeah. and I'd say people would ask, you know, de donde eres, you know, where are you from? And, right. and I'd say, oh, well, that I'm from Santa Fe, Nuevo Mexico. And oh, that they had been there for folk art. And, you know, so there was this connection that we had um, that, I could have potentially missed if I didn't speak Spanish. Yeah, no, that's a great, it's a great skill set, especially in New Mexico, having grown up in New Mexico. <laughs> um, so, when, so when you finish, uh, so you go and do an internship at Jerry's and that, what happened after that? So it turned into, um, it turned into a full-time position. And um, I was working under Gail Maxson Edgerton, um, who, gosh, Gail, Gail kind of did everything at the gallery. Yeah, um, yeah she, she did. Worked, yep. She worked with all the living artists and, you know, um, coordinated with Jerry to create the exhibition schedule. And, um, but, you know, she was just so, so knowledgeable and so natural with clients. Um, and, and had worked there for, for quite some time. So, so I worked under Gail. Um, I was there for a number of years and then, um, and I learned, I learned so much, yeah. um, you know, just working with living artists is very different than, you know, working and selling historic art and, um, sometimes a challenge, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, often, um, after I'd moved on to Matucci years later and, you know, people would say, who's your favorite artist? And inevitably that question would come, you know, during the summertime with lots of deadlines for advertising and our newsletter and invitations and whatever. And I'd be frustrated and I'd say, I like the dead artists because they make every deadline, <laughs> you know? No, it, <laughs> you I mean, know well. yeah, no, I mean, it, it, is, a, it is a different skill set working with deceased art. And it's interesting, you'll see most gallerists don't have a lot of deceased 
they just have living or they have just deceased and not much living. And it doesn't seem like they, uh, you know, cross over. I personally like both tremendously. And I'm probably actually more in the living artist camp just because I enjoy working with artists so much. Um, um, but part of it is getting the right artists and the right mix and not getting people that, you know, you can't deal with um, and, and vice versa, I'm sure as well. So you spend, how long were you at Jerry's place? At his gallery, Gerald. Yeah, I was at Jerry's for what three? I think three years, mm -hmm. and um, then I worked for John Schaefer. Mm. I, I kind of worked for everybody in Santa Fe. Um, I worked for John Schaefer um, for for about a year. Um, he had just opened Peyton Wright, mm. and um, this is like and then, three or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and when and. During when when I was at Peyton Wright, I met Jeff Mitchell, mm. um, and Jeff and his wife Janet, right. and Pam and Don Duncan. So this is when it was Mitchell Brown Duncan. Um, they were um, talking about moving to Santa Fe, and then you know then they did, and and Jeff had said to me at one point, you know, I, I'd like to talk to you further and. You know, so I kind of explored that a little bit. And then I worked for Jeff for a couple of years um, when he had his little gallery, when he and Don had the gallery there on Delgado. Maynard Dixon's. Definitely. I remember when um, when he had the book signing for Don Haggerty yep. mm -hmm. um, and a really beautiful, you know, little Dixon show at the time. Yeah. Um, so, and then, you know, Jeff decided that perhaps it was better for him to close the gallery and to focus more on, you know, working with the private clients that he had and, right. and not to have so much exposure, quite honestly. Right. And, um, and so, but he was very, very dedicated to, to helping. Um, there were three of us that were working for him. And um, so Kari Taylor, um, he had called Mark and Richard um, at Zaplin Lampert, you know, and made the introduction for her to them. And then for me, he had called Nidra. Um, and so that's how I started working at Matucci. Mm -hmm. And so you started working for her at what, in what year was that? Like 96? Yeah, 96, I think it was, 95, yeah. 96. Uh -huh. Yeah, and, and so when had she bought that gallery from Forrest Finn? How long ago? When did she buy that? I don't remember. I think Deidre bought the gallery in 1989. That sounds about right. Yeah. So he had been going for a while. And of course, Forrest had, you know, had built his own clientele. And it was Aerosmith. I, you probably know that history that yeah, Rex Aerosmith was yeah. part of it at one time. And so mm -hmm. what was that like working for Deidre? Because you worked for her for quite a while, right? I did. Um, it, it was, I mean, every single day was, you know, such a learning opportunity. Yeah. Um, as you know, I mean, the gallery is, is very large and yeah. with the one acre sculpture garden in the backyard and, um, but a mix of living and historic artists, yep. um, primarily Western, but, but also American and, and modern artists and, um, so, I mean, I loved it. Um, you know, so many 
people visiting Santa Fe are from Texas. And um, I knew a lot of people who were coming in and um, it, it, in some ways it was kind of like old home week, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I got paid for it. Um, so, you know, you so to go I, out to that pond and, and during lunch, <laughs> I love that pond. I actually yeah, made a pond like I, that in my house at my house uh, that was inspired off of her, her pond. It was, it's just so beautiful. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So, I, we were just over there this morning, actually. And how nice is that? Yeah. Perfect. I mean, you know, in the midst of of everything that we're all experiencing, you know, I said to to Dustin, who's the director of the gallery, it's like, what a what a beautiful place and so peaceful, um, you know, to know that you could go there and just to spend a little bit of quiet time and to feel safe and comfortable doing so. Um, and surrounded by art and, and mother nature. I mean, it's, I don't think you can get any better. Yeah, no, you can social distance and do it outdoors. And, you know, she could still have openings this summer. If she chose to, I don't know if she's doing that or not, but you know, we're all outside. Right. Definitely. And, and so um, what was your job at Nidra's? What, what, what did you do? Um, so the first few months that I was there, um, you know, I was just kind of learning the artists and just a salesperson. And, um, and you know, she represented a number of living artists who, who I had been exposed to, but I didn't know, you know, much about their background and their history. So that's really what I focused my time on. And then, you know, I mean, Matucci's is kind of like... Um, it's like a chamber of commerce of sorts. I mean, you're asked about restaurants that you suggest yep. and places to go. And, you know, so it's so much more than, than just about art. It's about, you know, being in Santa Fe and being in New Mexico. Um, and then um, they hadn't had a director at the gallery. Um, I think it had been about six months or so. And so they asked me and another coworker, Alexis Buchanan, if we would, you know, take the directorship together, that I would, you know, work with all the salespeople and the interns, and then Alexis um, would be in the office and work with, with that part of the staff. So it was a pretty large staff. I think there were 20 some odd people, oh, you know, the, yeah, mid nineties yeah. and, um, with, you know, quarterly newsletters, monthly advertising, um, exhibitions, um, starting in May every three weeks. And then, you know, one of the things that Nidra and Richard Matucci, when they bought the gallery, um, a part of the way that they, gave back to the community, if, if you will, was by um, allowing um, people to rent the gallery for, for parties, for fundraisers, etc. Mm -hmm. And so we had three to four of those every week. Every week? Every week. Oh, my. <laughs> mm -hmm. I mean, yep. particularly during high time. Yeah. And yeah. you know, Nidra was on the board of a number. She was on the O'Keefe Museum board. She was on the opera board. And so all of these organizations that she was part of, then, you know, they were using the gallery as well for functions. So 
that was, it was, a, it was, I mean, it was fun, but it was, they were long days, you know, oh, some, some weeks were really long. Um, but definitely the heyday, if you will, you know, I don't remember the year, I think, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think it was 98 was when we had um, a, a show for Glenna Goodacre. Uh -huh. And Glenna and her husband, Mike Schmidt, had just gotten married. And so our kind of marketing um, approach was that it was an opening, but it was also their wedding reception. Uh, oh, my gosh. And so I'm not joking. We had, I mean, all kinds of fire codes were broken that night. Um, <laughs> there were thousands of people in the gallery. And yeah. I mean, literally, we... We sold art all night long. I mean, just one sculpture after another. And it was it was so exciting to be oh, yeah, in that, is. that and and you know, and wow, what a celebration for your for your wedding, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that's really you're right. I mean, ninety-eight would be that's really kind of that peak time, the mid nineties to even two thousand. I think for mm -hmm. Santa Fe style, Santa Fe art. I had, I opened my galley there, I think in about 96, uh, mm -hmm. something like that. So I, I remember it, you know, especially Indian market, you know, you could, people would be lined, oh, yeah. out, the, lined out the door and uh, yeah, not that way. It was definitely not that way this year because there's, there's no, no, no Indian market. Yeah. At so you worked for Nidra for how long did you do that job? Um, let's see, I worked for Nidra until, I think it was probably till, till like the mid 2000s. Yeah. I left and I worked at American Country Collection for a couple of years, um, hoping, you know, very high end um, furnishings mm -hmm. and um and and kind of home environments if you will the yep. way that I, I that store that was was curated yep. and you know chip livingston who was the owner i had said to him well you know if you're selling a twenty five thousand dollar sofa why don't you have real art right and you know instead of kind of prints and, and right. G clays and things like that. And, um, and he was very open, you know, to the possibility. And, um, but it's an interesting thing how that doesn't always translate, you know, if, if a client is, is spending that much money on a sofa um, that, that they would then also want, you know, really beautiful art for their walls. Right. Um, and so I then went back to Matucci um, and I worked at Morningstar for a year mm. and then back, back up to the gallery. Um, but you yeah. got exposed to a lot of early Native American <laughs> material too then, didn't you? I, I did. Yeah. So you're quite knowledgeable. You know, about it. Well, I think I know enough to be very dangerous. That's yeah. what I would say. <laughs> um, you know, I learned very quickly with the historic Native American material that I couldn't approach it in the same way that I had American art. Mm. Um, I couldn't read books and, and you know, look at, at, at photographs to, to kind of educate my eye because with Native American material, there's so much 
that physical um, intuition that you have when you're holding the object to be able to tell the difference between a hide that is truly old and historic from the late 1800s right. and original versus a hobbyist's, you know, object that would be early 1930s or 40s or whatever, that difference and then the beads and the, the way that the beads are, I mean, it, it, and you don't get that with a photograph. You only are able to really inform yourself with the object itself in hand. Yeah, that's true. And I find that when I have something like that, you know, I use all senses, you know, whether it's mm -hmm. smell, you know, yeah, I mean, you literally smell to see what you can, you know, is there a sense of age? Is there a sense of, you know, tobacco or whatever there might be, uh, you know, touch, um, you know, you really, I agree with you. You really, it is very difficult on some things to be able to evaluate it without the object in hand. And I think two-dimensional works of art are much easier in that standpoint. Not that they don't have their own issues, which they definitely do, but it is a little bit easier. For one thing, you can look at it and go pretty much right off the bat. You can go, okay, that looks correct. You know, right. You know, there's an innate sense that you go, yeah, that's the artist's hands. Now there may be all sorts of things that's going on with it that are issues, but I, I agree with you. So you did that process working with native antique, pretty much all antique Native American material for a year, right? Mm -hmm. But you haven't really collected it as a curator for the collection, right? It's really, you've kind of stayed away from that. It's more fine art, paintings and things. So when, you know, when my client started collecting, um, you know, he was the impetus for, you know, what was being considered for the collection. And, so that's, that was not where, you know, where his, his eye and his interest was drawn initially. Right. Um, and, you know, there were, so at Matucci, I was back at Matucci then, he mm. called one day, he had an interest in buying a, a small Doug Hyde bronze. Mm -hmm. um, and so I asked him, you know, you collect Native American, contemporary Native American art. And well, he said, you know, he was, he had bought a few things. And so I started, you know, by then I'd been doing this for quite a while. And, you know, the, I, I'm not a natural salesperson. It's not, that's not who I am. You can't take me from being in a gallery and working with art and, you know, let's say sell cars. I, I don't know anything about cars. I'm sure I could teach myself, but you know, a lot of where I feel like I'm good is based on my passion. And, um, and so, you know, early on, I was kind of asking him questions, have you collected these artists or considered these or, you know, trying to help understand his, his process. And, and so it started a conversation between the two of us, um, which was really remarkable. Um, you know, he was, he was doing research and looking on the internet and looking at the gallery's website. And I'd come in in the morning and there would be this whole long list of, you know, 20 artists. And he'd say, I'd like to buy these. And I'd take a look at the list of artists and I'd think, huh, okay, so what is all of this? Like, what do all of these elements, how do they come together as right. one? or do they not? 
And, and then, you know, my, just me innately, I think, okay, well, that's a nice, let's say, E. Martin Hennings drawing, but maybe not one of his best, you know? And so, and I think it's, it's part of who I am. I mean, I'm, I'm a mother and, um, you know, so, and at that point, my daughter, Emma, would have been maybe 10. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so you're, you're kind of in that mode in the way right. that you're looking at life and right. explaining things. And so instead of just saying, okay, here, let me write all of this up for you. Here's your, your discount and where do you want it shipped? I started asking him a lot of questions and having this great photo archive at Matucci from when for going all the way back to when Forrest started the gallery mm-hmm. and, and sending him images and saying, these are probably the five best Joseph Bacos paintings ever. And this one that you're thinking about, maybe this isn't the opportunity for you, but here's some more information about him. And then I'd go on to the next artist. And, you know, like another time I remember we were having a retrospective show for Glenna and, you know, a very long list came in. And, and so it gave me an opportunity to say, you know, even though we had a broad cross section of, of her sculpture um, for him to consider or for any collector to consider, Mm -hmm. it didn't necessarily mean that if you're putting together a collection of, let's say 10 of her sculptures, that what you choose would be within the group of what we had. Right. There, there definitely were others that we didn't, you know, that weren't being included because they, the editions had sold out or, or whatever that I would have included in my group of 10 and not others that he had picked. And so there was always this learning opportunity for us to have a conversation. And, and later on, he told me that, you know, he said, I was the first person in this endeavor in collecting art that told him no. And he's it's a really important thing. He's not someone that many people say no to anyway. So, you know, but I didn't I didn't look at it that way. Yeah. You were being honest and that's the difference. Yeah. You know, and a lot, I think a lot of times in any situation of sales, people just want to sell, right? They they're and if you really care about your client and you care about what you're doing, you edit for them, you help them, you help them grow something that's of quality, not just bulk. And that's what you were doing. And he, and, and he, he clearly respected that. And I assume at that point when he's starting, he really is just beginning, becoming a collector and realizing he wants to do something, but doesn't really, maybe hasn't figured out what it is he's collecting how to collect it's money maybe not the issue it's really what do i buy i like this so i want to get this but his eye at that point isn't probably trained yet i'm sure it's very trained by now um but (laughs) (laughs) highly trained um but i assume that's kind of what you brought to the table was your eye it was it was my eye and then also you know, the having seen as you have, I mean, think about, you know, if we talk about Dixon and even, even 
smaller drawings of his, you know, not the major canvases. Right. And you've seen hundreds, if not thousands of, of his drawings. So that each and every time it's an opportunity, you're informing your eye with right. another work that you've seen. And then at the same time, kind of you're going through that process of where that drawing fits into his overall body of work. Is it one of the best? Right. Is it kind of one in the middle? Or maybe it's as a group, it, it could be interesting with others from that same time, but on its own, it's, it's not terribly strong. It was right. just for him, for Dixon, it would have been part of his process. He was always, you know, experimenting and, and, and trying to, to understand form and shape and, you know, so, so that was a lot of what I was helping him with that, you know, there are several questions that I can't remember if somebody had taught them to me or exactly how, I don't remember how that came about, but, you know, looking at if you have X amount of money and it could be $5,000, it could be $5 million, mm -hmm. um, looking at the object that fits within that price range, is that the one that you're thinking about, is it the best A, by that artist, um, and B, you know, I mean, is the artist still creating? Mm -hmm. You know, so that means you still have another opportunity. Do you have to take this opportunity or is it a really rare object? Right. Um, you know, so that all those um, factors determine, you know, the, the decision. Um, and, you know, at this point, after his having collected for, I mean, what, 13, yeah, 13 years, very, in a very dedicated fashion, um, you know, with a considerable amount of art being added to this collection every year, um, it, now there's, there's some discernment, um, but it's $50,000, you know, buying X work, whether it's contemporary or historic, what does that bring to this collection now? Is it right. a new fresh artist that then broadens the story for that particular time period of this collection? Is it a duplication of effort maybe? Is it, you know, does it, does it start a whole new direction? Mm -hmm. have, you, um, have you got to the point, or maybe there isn't that point where you go, okay, we've got, this is a better example than what we have and let's get rid of this other one and you know just put this in its place or do you just keep the other one as well um we, no he really has not de-accessed yet it, it, it has not been you know selling has not been something that that we have participated in as far as the market is concerned i, I think at some point he will um I mean, and I think that that's a natural kind of evolution of a collection. Yeah, I would. Um, think so. Yeah. So, um, you know, as as much as many objects are being added, I mean, like this last year, I mean, there were you know several hundred works added to the collection, mm -hmm. um, and and not all major works either, um, but still, you know 
we really go through a lot of discussion. It's, there's very little that is kind of off the cuff, capricious, I'll buy that. You know, there's, there's a lot of back and forth and my trying to, you know, share information about that artist um, his asking more questions then, his trying to understand, you know, what I was just saying, how that work fits into the collection um, or, or not. You know, that's, that's an interesting part of the process too of, you know, coming to the realization something that you think could be perfect, maybe as much as you want it to fit and to work, it, it doesn't. And how do you determine what the theme the overall arcing uh, component of this collection is because it's a very, you know, it's a it's a wide range of material, really wide range. What is that determinant? So, in addition, in the very beginning, he has always talked about this collection as being global, mm. um, and so, and you know that. It's, it's such a big idea, um, but I think that it beautifully is, you know, the umbrella by which, you know, he's creating this collection. Um, and, you know, like after we had the opening for New Beginnings in October of 2018, the historic Western exhibition that opened at Scottsdale Museum of the West, right, which is um, we he and I sat down and, and, and I said, you know, not that this part of the collection is complete because there will be great paintings that will become available right. that could further, you know, what, what's been created, but it was in pretty good shape, you know, with a wide range of, of artists represented, certainly the big names, if you will, but right. then lots of, the contemporaries of the Taos and Santa Fe artists that no one had ever heard of. Yeah. Um, it wasn't just a checklist of the favorites. And so, you know, I said to him, okay, this part is good. This, this, this garden, that's another analogy that I use that, you know, you have to tend a garden to keep the weeds out and to nurture some plants that need a little bit more water or fertilizer. And I said, what are you going to do now? <laughs> and because it's such an opportunity to continue broadening this collection and at the same time, you know, thinking about what's already been established, having relevancy between, you know, kind of the old part of the collection, if you will, and then the newer. And so, you know, over the last couple of years, there's been a real focus and dedication on contemporary Native American artists. Oh, that's and it's been, gosh, it's been so exciting to learn, you know, about, I mean, there's so many, um, there's so, not just with Native American artists, I mean, with art in general, as you well know, there are so many clever, talented artists out there who I wish I had 48 hours in every 24 you know, to be able to learn and to understand and just to have the exposure to their, to their work. And so when you look at Native American artists, are you primarily looking at sculpture and flat art or do you also take in things like Marla Catoni who does these contemporary weavings that are just insane or, you know, people that are doing Jody Falwells of the world who do really contemporary 
pottery. Uh, pottery and things like that. Is that part of the component? So the, the, the natural progression was certainly for, you know, paintings, works on paper and sculpture, um, because, you know, within the collection, he, one of the artists he started with in the very beginning was um, with Alan Hauser's sculptures. Sure. And um, so, you know, we're fortunate. I think that we've got 12 works, mm. um, all stone pieces, mm. with the exception of, of one bronze and then one early work on paper. Um, and so, you know, kind of using that as our nod forward. Mm -hmm. um, yes, that is where it started. I mean, just recently, I mean, he started asking questions about artists and wanting to understand, you know, how they fit in to that bigger, broader picture. Sure. Um, and so we're not quite there yet, but, but certainly working on it as far as other, you know, Native American art forms are concerned. Yeah, I would think. I mean, I would think if you collect a Mateo Romero, you need a Diego Romero as well. Right. I mean, the bookend is really yeah. just working in different, you know, media. Yeah. But we do have Kara Romero's photography. Photography, yeah, and that's right. We're kind of our, we're starting the path. <laughs> He's wonderful. I get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. definitely. So I, I, it seems like that would be a natural that you focus in on that, and then you go, okay, there's a whole other thing here as yes. well that really should be, you know, to tell the story. You have to almost. And to right. fill that garden, you can't just have tomatoes and peppers. You need right. some corn and some peas and some other things that maybe even arugula and some things that you normally may not consider. Um, right. And I think that's wonderful that you're doing native artists. Do, do, have you considered looking at other things too, like uh, African-American art and yes. what's going on there? Because there's, I mean, that's a really amazing area of some of the material that's being produced in that community as well. Like, I don't know if you know who Leonardo Drew is, but yes. if yeah he's a guy that i collect actually for my own collection and you know he's amazing i don't know mm -hmm. if you have him in your collection yet but if you don't <laughs> he, that, but... Yeah, i'll give you his number or his, <laughs> or his gallery's <laughs> number yeah he's really wonderful and so what have you done on that front as far as like african-american art um you know it i'm trying to think there have been kind of a handful of artists um, you know, who's not just Native American, but African American, you know, that we have, have collected Native American. I mean, let's see, we have added um, a couple of paintings by Kent Monkman. Mm -hmm. um, so one is um, currently on loan to the Philbrook Museum um, called Victory for the Water Protectors. Um, and then the second painting is called Death of the Female, um, and that is getting ready to be sent out to the Autry Museum. Um, we've added a, a, several wonderful works by Edgar Heepa Birds. Um, oh, we see, have Tony Abeda's work, I'm, I would we think. We have several of Tony's. We actually just bought a I mean, I would have said before I saw it, a very large, now I would say a huge early <laughs> Tony Abeta from 1991 that um, just had come up at auction. Uh -huh. He did that as a commission for some, some people in um, California. Um, you know, so we're, the other thing too is we're looking at, 
at auctions and working with galleries and you know directly with artists though our intention i mean having been a dealer my intention is never to skirt the dealer itself but you know the way that we're putting this collection together these are real relationships it's not just a commodity transaction right uh, i try very hard to, to honor the dealer but then also you know to create that connection with the the creator with the artist yeah and um sometimes it's a bit of a balance but um let's see we added a beautiful work by um marie watt um who's in portland and uh, james lavador um I mean, it's, we're, we've been extremely fortunate. We really, really have. So how do you go about finding artists? Um, you know, do they, because probably, I mean, dealers know who you are for sure, you know, and if they get great works, they show it to you. But how do you find those new artists or artists that you may not be familiar with? Do you, is that incumbent on you doing research all the time and looking, or do you get people who are, uh, artists that are presenting their artwork to you on a regular basis? You know, it's a little bit of everything. Um, I mean, we, so Tia Collection has been pretty under the radar, um, you know, part of that by design, if you will. Um, you know, there, there are some weeks that I mean, we're very fortunate to be approached by so many people. And, and at the same time, you know, to, to treat everyone properly. Um, I will admit that, you know, my emails don't always get answered and, and I feel uh -huh. bad about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, it goes back to my, I need 48 hours in a 24 hour day. Um, and so, but you know, I, up until March, um, you know, I was traveling very, I was traveling a lot and going to museum exhibitions and, and just going to museums, um, you know, to, to start to see um, their collections. And, and again, looking for great examples of known, well-known artists. Um, but then I'm also just as interested as, you know, in the, in the lesser known, the less um, well-known um, artists and, you know, reading and um, looking at auctions and new books. And I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's a Every lot end. of work yeah. and you know, processing a lot of information. And then what, you know, what, what dealers are saying to me and, you know, suggesting about artists that they represent or that maybe they don't represent, but they're really passionate about. Mm -hmm. um, it's it's all of that it's all of us coming together you know to help a collection like this it's not it's definitely not something that i'm just doing all by myself it takes a lot it takes that village yeah. <laughs> you know so when you find somebody that you like that you see that's unique or different or there's something you can see it fits into the puzzle then you you'll present that to your collector and say here's a potential, it's, you know, it may not even be a piece that's offered to you, but just someone that you think should be on their radar. Yes. Yeah. That, that, that's a lot of work for you. I mean, that's an amazing amount of responsibility, really. Um. But, you know, so much, so much information is coming to me. Like yesterday, I'll give you an example. There was, um, 
I'm trying to remember, I think it was through Art News that an email came in about a podcast, um, you know, that the artist Hank Willis Thomas was, was having, you know, it was an interview talking about, you know, his social activism um, and how that is, I mean, it's the basis of his work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that, you know, fell what, two months, three months, whatever it is after I had been at Crystal Bridges in February Mm. and they had, oh my gosh, it was such a moving exhibition of his um, from very early in his career all the way through to, you know, current work that he's creating. And, um, And so when I was at Crystal Bridges, you know, I took video, I was taking photographs of works in the show, and then the wall tags that, you know, were telling about some of the the particular pieces. Um, And then, you know, when I got back, I created a whole email for my client, these images and the stories from each one of the pieces in the show. And then I had linked to his website. And, you know, so that was kind of the beginning of, of like saying, this artist is, is talented but you know and then for me i'm drawing connections within the collection you know to other artists other specific artwork etc so when the email came in yesterday about this podcast you know for my client to be able to hear him in in person his words not not mine or Mm. or museum director or curators but his own words about his art you know, so like, that's a simple thing. I just forwarded that. And I said, you know, remember this show that I saw at Crystal Bridges and the email I sent, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, so it is this very ongoing, I'm sure that there are days for him that are daunting because I'm sending so much kind of unrelated information to him. Right. You know, so he's got to be on his toes and and he teases and he's like, okay, you know, there t- I, I open your emails twice, you know, in the beginning of the day and the end of the day. <laughs> so the, the beginning of his day was the end of my day the day before. Right. Um, and, you know, my emails are typically single topic. So that, because I, I have found for me, and I could imagine for him, it's hard to pivot that many times in one email. Yeah. You know, so that some of the emails are quick, like, oh, I thought this was interesting, or wow, you should listen to this podcast, or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, Blue Rain sent an email yesterday, kind of their pre announcement to their Spanish market um, exhibition. And so I sent that on to him, and I was like, wow, I, I don't know, you know, a couple of these artists. And thought you would enjoy. And so then he responds back, you know, wow, I, I love these works, you know, ask for more information. So it's a lot of that kind of back and forth. And then, I mean, not all the time, but there are times and I send information and they don't hear anything. So that's his nice way of saying either (laughs) it doesn't resonate with him or maybe he needs more information or he needs more time to consider, you know, to process that information. It could mean any number of things, but um, so then it will kind of sit, mm-hmm. you know, and, and 
I've got a whole running list and then I'll think, oh, I haven't heard anything about that. And then I'll bring it up and, you know, we'll, we'll either talk about it or, or maybe that's the end of the conversation. So, um, well, I think I mean, it's interesting that, fun. you know, and, and a good learning experience for artists, dealers to listen to something like this, because it's clear that an email that's sent to you on a show is important. Artists going out and doing podcasts can literally make the difference between that resonation of the art and the person versus going, well, yeah, it's nice, but I don't, I don't see the inner component that I really need to. So, I mean, I think of nothing else, people listening to this, especially other dealers and artists that are listening to this podcast to take that away from this is that, you, you know, you need to be out there and letting people see the content and who and what you are. Uh, because otherwise, you know, it's, it might, might not ever hit your, you know, your email and clearly getting into a major collection like the Tia collection adds prestige as well. And you get, uh, get exhibited all over the world, basically when they loan out the pieces. So mm -hmm. I, I find that to be, uh, so it shows how important being a curator is into the whole cog of how this works from the dealer to the artist to museums and um, so be assured you will I'll make sure your all my emails are going to your <laughs> to your uh, email address. Sorry, Laura, you're going to get some more. I assume they <laughs> I assume they probably already do, but if they don't, we're going to make sure of that. So now you've been doing this as a curator for how many years now? Since 2012, I left the gallery um, at the beginning of the year. And, um, oh my gosh, I was so very naive. I mean, I thought that I knew what was going on and right. it was just me. Um, and, you know, I, I had an idea that we were going to create a website and, you know, that would function on, on the front end to be able to share with museums and then on the back end as our inventory system, so to speak. And, um, I think I've worked on that for maybe two weeks. And then all of a sudden I found through him that there was art all over the world that needed to come to Santa Fe to be stored where mm -hmm. it had been for however long it had been where it was then. Right. And, you know, I did a little bit of shipping and understood the process at Matucci. Right. But it was definitely not my my job on a daily basis. And so all of a sudden I'm dealing with customs and you know, I had to prevail myself and just say, I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And cause I had no idea right. and right. we had no space. I was doing this out of my home um, <laughs> and definitely didn't have room to store art here. And, um, you know, so one thing led to another and we had an, our early, our first iteration of storage, um, two small-ish spaces that were, I forget, one was I think uh, 12 by 12 and then the other one was like 20 by 12. Yeah. And, um, but in, the, in more of an art storage type of environment with other galleries and the museum had storage there and, um, but I had no shipping department or, you know, so it, it was really, um, gosh, it was an eye-opening experience. And so, you know, that first three years, um, I was working on, on that and acquisitions and 
we published a couple of catalogs. And I mean, my daughter who was in high school at the time and, you know, it would be five, five thirty, and she'd say, mom, are, are we having dinner tonight? <laughs> you know, like my sense of time completely went out the door. Uh-huh. Um, and then, you know, it was what three, we're in 2020. Yeah, so it was three, almost four years ago that we moved into the space where we are now, where you've been to. And um, right now um, we're working on one of the the little spaces right next door. So we have the two big spaces that you've seen, adding a third, um, which we've owned for a couple of years, but there was someone in there leasing the space. And so right now we're outfitting that um, the library is going to move over there and our incoming bins will move there. We're going to set up a little photography area um, mm-hmm. for Jamie Hart, you know, because some of the art is, is huge. Right. Um, and that way he'll be able to come out to storage and photograph there. Um, so, you know, we're growing and learning and our offices will be upstairs. And then um, in May, actually, we just added um, and, and, purchased the, the freestanding building in that same little compound, um, which now has all of our crates. Um, we've got um, two of the spaces that are used for additional art storage. Um, you know, so it's, we're, we're continuing to grow and change and, and adapt. And then, you know, the digital catalogs that um, I hope you've been receiving yours, yep. you know, the last couple of months, um, you know, so we're, we're continuing to, to, you know, try to bring people in and, and to share what it is that we're doing. And that's working. I mean, I got the Deborah, Co- uh, Deborah Butterfield's uh, museum show and they talk about the painting, the tsunami or the tsunami sculpture, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm reading those things when I see them, when they come by and right. it helps. Yeah, no, it's a, I, and I think it allows people to uh, understand more about what the collection is, what's going on, and are you guys a four five hundred one three C at this point, or or not as an organization? We we are not, right. um, but he. Well, I'm not sure. I mean, whether that will really be you know part of the long term or not. I mean, it is a private you know collection. It's not. I mean, there is no part of this that's for profit. Right. No, um, I, I get that totally. You know, the way that we work with museums, I mean, there's no there's no cost to borrow the art. Right. Um, you know, we have crates and/or strong boxes, and so we take on you know that expense as well. I mean, that's part of the the stewardship for us on right. behalf of each work of art. Um, you know, so there is no cost there for an institution, and then all of the high res photography um, because we have the art. And, you know, to be able to color match, et cetera. So, you know, so we, when we do work with institutions, we're sending the art, we've already paid for the creating, we have the high res to be able to provide for, for press purposes or um, invitation or, you know, email or whatever. Right. Um, and, I mean, it's been the institutions that, that we are working with, um, which are, we are very fortunate, you know, over the years, it's gotten little bit more each year that you know that we're we're working with um which i'm so grateful to 
you know, when I come in every day and I look at the amount of art and, you know, certainly not to boast, but, but it's fabulous work. It should be out there and shared yeah. and experienced. And um, I mean, so that's my constant motivation to, you know, to be reaching out to more and more institutions. And, and I hope, you know, museums that, that hear this podcast will um, certainly will contact you um, to find out how to, to talk further with Tia because that's, um, that's the mission is to share. It is an art lending library um, that's meant to be as malleable as, as any institution needs. Um, and I mean, I could be wrong, but I feel that, you know, this last few months and the financial impact of, you know, two museums, um, the fact that, you know, unlike a gallery, not that it hasn't been difficult for galleries, but you have commodities, you have art that can be sold. You yep. have a way to pull yourself out of that hole, whereas an institution, they, it's almost impossible for them to recoup that loss of revenue from ticket sales, right, from everything. You know, everything in the bookstore, et cetera. And so you know, I, I certainly feel that there's an opportunity that we can help institutions because there is no expense to borrow from us. <laughs> yeah, which they will all love to hear. You and know, it's, and so. it's world-class art, too. It's not just that you're getting to borrow art. It's world-class art. And, um, yeah, I think you will get some phone calls from this, from museums that are going to be looking for that, because we're going to lose some museums, too. Some museums are not going to be able to stay open. They're just not going to. I mean, they're just not going to be able to make this up. And, and um you know, unless something that we see from funding happens that, that doesn't. So also people who are out there and listening to this, support your local museums. Yes, yes. Because you know, they do need it desperately, most of them mm -hmm. do. And so yeah. what's the long-term outlook for this collection? I mean, you know, past you, past the collector, um, where does this head from there? So, you know, Tia, I haven't mentioned this yet. So Tia is the name of his daughter. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, she's been, she's been the inspiration for him all along. And, um, and, and, you know, from my perspective, I mean, you know, thinking about a young girl, um, you know, so we've always tried very hard to, um, to collect and focus on women artists, both historic and contemporary. And, um, you know, so that growing up, she has all of these mentors, if you will, to surround her. She's very creative. Um, she loves photography. And um, so, you know, I mean, she's probably got, I don't know, maybe another I don't know, 10 years or so before, I mean, she's got to finish school, so she's in college, and, um, but she's already taking, you know, a real interest in, in this collection. She's been with her parents to visit many artists on their family trips, and um, so, you know, kind of similar to the way that I grew up, where, you know, we were exposed, these experiences, you know, part of your memories, and I mean, I'm sure at the time when she was little, six, seven, eight years old, 
sure, I bet it was interesting, but it was probably not exactly where she wanted to be that moment. I can assure you, know? you it wasn't. Right. My kids were at the gallery openings and they were underneath tables yeah. and things coloring and wishing it would be over soon. Right. <laughs> we so, have to go eat with Ed Mel afterwards. Right. Can't we go home? Of course, now they cherish those moments, but. Of course. Well, and, and I'm sure, you know, like seeing works in your collection that they might have remembered like when they first came to the house and you yeah. all began living with them. It, it does, it's this multi-layered, you know, lasting effect that in the moment it is what it is, yeah. um, but with time and with maturity, you know, they're all able to look back on it and there's real depth and meaning to the experience. So, yeah. and that's something that, I mean, it's a very special thing, I think, to be able to share, you know, with our children, going to museums, visiting galleries, yeah. you know, knowing artists, et cetera. So, you know, for the long run, I mean, I hope that we will collaborate more and more with institutions and, you know, not just place or share one work of art but you know a group of artists you know like the philbrook they have they this last year they took i think six works mm. and um one of the pieces wasn't an exhibition and so they had to wait and we shipped it to them late you know so it's kind of an ongoing um kind of connection with them and um so you know, but then there are other institutions like the Autry has the casting of Alan Hauser's Sacred Rain Arrow, which, you know, is the image that's on the Oklahoma license plate. Mm -hmm. um, so they have that monumental casting. It's a 25 year loan. Um, mm. So that's kind of where the relationship with them started. And, um, you know, so I just hope that this right now, I feel like we're still in the beginning of the ripple effect, if you will. Right, we are. Um, and, you know, that that will be, we will be able to work and to support more and more institutions. It's about helping them achieve their goals, not, you know, it's not really about TIA. Um, because as, as you know, I mean, most people have not met my client. They don't know his name. Right. Um, and for him, it's not, that doesn't come from a secretive standpoint. He has always wanted the focus to be on the art and the artists, you know, so that as he said early on, it's, it's not a vanity project for him. This is not about him. It's about them and their creations. Yeah, that's so. an amazing thing. You know, that's so amazing when you think about somebody who says it's about the artists and the art, not me. That's a, not very yeah. rare. <laughs> You're very fortunate to have uh, a position where you can work with somebody who really gets what it's all about. Oh my gosh. I, I mean, I think my lucky stars every uh -huh. single I definitely do. <laughs> well, you earned it though. You know, oh, you, 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 well, it's true. You don't get to that position without doing the right things, whether it's learning the material, understanding it, having an analytical mind, as well as being honest and saying, you know, maybe this isn't the best piece. That was the key. So that's, that could be a great takeaway for all of us. Anything else you want to say before we wrap this up? It's been really a fun and interesting 
Uh, well, I'm podcast. so I was so humbled when you sent your email asking me to do this. It um, and so I really appreciate you know you thinking of of Tia and and wanting to you know help us you know kind of share a little bit more about the collection and and what we're trying to to do and to accomplish going forward. So I'm I'm really appreciative and and he is as well. Well, it's you know it's a really important thing. I mean, I've gone to probably eight uh, different exhibits over the years and have gotten great joy out of all of those. And the one that was at the Scottsdale Museum of the West, I went, I think, three times to just oh. that exhibit and, wow. and bought the books to give away because it was just, you know, so phenomenal of a collection. And then when I got to see the actual, you know, the body of this collection and that's just a small little snippet of what's out there then it, you know i realized the magnitude of what's been done here and um so you know being able to talk to you being able to uh, let people know uh, about this wonderful collection that's is just as much humbling to me to be able to do it as as, as anyone else so I, I appreciate you taking the time and uh we'll i'm sure there will be some things that will come back from this podcast, just like you found that artist and listened to it. Somebody's going to be listening to this, a museum director, and go, oh my God, they'll ship it for free? They'll ship it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They'll take care of it, all of it. Well, thank you very much. Stay safe in Santa Fe. I hope to get up there before the season is completely gone. This will be the first year in 30 years I haven't spent my summer in Santa Fe, but you know, it is what it is. It's a new world. Well, let me know when you're here. I'd love to have you and Kathleen over and we can show you some new things. I would love to see the new buildings. Thank you, Laura, so Sounds much. Thanks, and, Mark. And uh, take care and we will talk very soon, I hope. Okay, sounds great. Thank my you. Email, my emails will be coming to your inbox. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> All right, thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye.